Hi, everybody. It's Mike Morse. Another episode of Open Mic. Super happy you guys tuned in or are listening, watching, whatever you're doing. We have another wrongfully convicted person on today's show. I should know exactly how many it is, but I lost count after about 12. This is it's getting uh, it's getting a little nuts. But today, super nice guy, Derek Sanders on November 3rd, 1992, police in Wisconsin found a dead body in an abandoned house. Jason Bowie had been beaten and shot in the head for allegedly stealing a television set from a man named Anthony Bodie. Our guest today, Derek Sanders, will tell you that he was with these people on that night and he actually beat up and punched and kicked possibly um, Jason Bowie who died, but it was not him who shot him. He had left the scene and heard the gunshot, but because he had bad counsel, bad lawyering, he spent more than 26 years in prison until the judge finally let him out. We're going to hear from Derek Sanders and hear about his story right now. Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Hello, Mr. Sanders. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? I'm I'm okay. Did I did I, I it's a little bit of a confusing story. Did I get that almost right? Hey, you hit it on the knob. Okay. Exactly what happened. Well, we're gonna we're gonna dive in um because it took me three or four times to read the facts of your uh case. So if I get something wrong, just stop me, correct me. Okay. Um the and Wisconsin court system. <laughs> say that again. I said, that's the exact same thing I had to do with the Wisconsin court system. I had to correct them because they got the facts wrong. Well, that's interesting. Well, let's just start by this. I mean, you're, you're a retired, not retired. You're a Navy veteran who was honorably discharged. You had a good paying job at the time this all happened, but yet you got yourself involved in uh, assaulting um, Jason Bowie, which you admitted to over a TV set. What was that all about? Well, uh, I had just returned home from Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield. So I had went to war and uh, was returning home, and I had a childhood friend. And what I was doing is I was looking for better opportunity. I was born and raised in Gary, Indiana, and uh, I wanted to find better opportunity upon returning home. And so my friend lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, I actually went down to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to visit him because I wanted to pursue a job. I wanted to find better opportunity, better employment. And so that I can start a career. And so I was actually only in Wisconsin for like six to eight hours. And as you said, it was over stolen TV sets. And I didn't really have no knowledge of what was going on. This is a person that I grew up with. I considered him family. And as he approached the guy who stole his television set, a fight ensued. And as that fight ensued, I did participate in that fight. 
and helped out and was involved in the uh, initial uh, fight and assault of, of the victim, Jason Bowie. And, and your friend and your friend was Anthony Bodie. Yes, Anthony Bodie. Okay. So Anthony Bodie got you involved in this. You, you you were sticking up for him. You were beating up on the guy who you guys thought stole a TV. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And then how did you leave the scene? When you left the scene, he was still alive? Uh, yes, he definitely was still alive. We was outside of the house, and we actually took the victim into the house. You know, this is a little embarrassing, but I'm being honest here, being open and candid. We took the victim inside the house, which is directly across the street from where the first altercation occurred. And uh, me, my uh, friend, Anthony Bodie, and there was actually another co-defendant. Uh, he had passed, since passed away named John Peavy. I didn't know him. He was friends with Anthony Bodie. We continued to assault the victim because at the time we was trying to extract information about where the TV was. At some point, I, I recognized that it was getting carried away. You know, the guy wasn't talking. It was it was too much blood. I, I thought what we were doing was doing a little too much. And so I had decided to, like, you know, I was going to stop. And, and I had told my co-defendants, like, man, you know, this is getting carried away. We should stop. And I then started cleaning up, cleaning up the house, cleaning up blood. And uh, I was sent actually outside or across the street to get some beer because we was we was at a house across the street to retrieve some beer from the house. And once I returned from the home, uh, my co-defendants and the victim were gone and they, they wasn't there anymore. And they had took the victim to another third location where I had never been. So who was, I thought this was an abandoned house. Yes. That's where they took him to. The third location was an abandoned house. What about the second location? The second location was actually the residence of Anthony Bodie. Was the residence of Anthony, but okay. So, so you decided to start cleaning up. You had cleaning supplies over there. Uh, well, yes, you know, it was just a mop. It was a mop inside the house. When I was cleaning up, I was cleaning up inside Anthony Bodie's house. And so, you know, I took a mop, cleaned up the blood and, you know, cleaning up the house because of uh, furniture was strong and whatnot. So I just started straightening up while they was in the next room questioning him. Okay. And so you took off and what happened next? Uh, I left, went outside, went across the street to one of the, my, uh, Anthony, my co-defendant, Anthony Bode, his friend's house, where we was at initially, and went to look for the beer. And when I came back, um, both of my co-defendants, Anthony Bode and John Peavy, and the victim, Jason Bode, they were all, they were not at the house. And because I didn't know my way around Milwaukee at the time, like I said, I had only been there six to eight hours. I ended up walking around the house, seeing if I can find them. And as I walked up the street, that's when I kind of seen someone and heard some noise. And I seen one of my co-defendants, John Peavy, and I asked him, where was Anthony and where was my friend? And he told me he was up the street. And I kind of like went through a gang yard. And that's what I see Anthony returning. Okay. And then what? And then next thing, he he didn't tell me nothing. We just walked. I asked him what was going on. Is everything all right? He was like, man, let's go. And uh, we went to his girlfriend's house. I think we called a taxi, if I recall. Yes. We called a cab to his girlfriend's house. And they had a little argument. And me and Anthony decided to go back to the house. And he said we, he was going home. He was mad. He wanted to go back to Gary, Indiana. And so we ended up catching the bus to Gary, Indiana, catching the train. Leaving. Where's the part that you heard the gunshot? You you left that part out. Oh, no, I wasn't there for the gunshot. You never heard the gunshot? I didn't hear the gunshot. Okay. I thought you did. No, I didn't so, hear so he never told you that, uh, that uh, Jason Bowie was deceased, that somebody shot him, that he shot him. Um, I mean, is it our rec? Is it your recollection? Who shot him? Uh, Anthony, Anthony, I've admitted to shooting him. 
Anthony Bodie shot him. Yes, he admitted to Anthony that. Anthony Bodie is still in prison for that. Oh, uh, he released. He's been released. He's been released. Okay. And um, he's the one who actually ended up saving your ass at the end of the day. Uh, yes, exactly. All right. So we'll get to that. Um, so, so despite the fact that he was your friend, he told the police that you were there present for the shooting. Right. Well, actually, he said he, and according to his affidavit, he said that they coerced into him into saying that and that he had told his attorney that he wanted to speak to the police again because he had lied on me and that his attorney informed him that he at the moment he couldn't uh, give him advice to speak to the detectives and they would deal with that later on. And so he said that he told he told them a lie that they pressured him after he kept telling them I wasn't involved, that they pressured him saying that I was and that he just went along with it, but that he immediately tried to change his story. To and tell Anthony, the okay, and that's Anthony Bodie. Yes, that's Anthony Bodie. Didn't John PV also say you were at the shooting? I recall one of his eight statements. John PV gave eight different statements. One of the statements he didn't say I was at the shooting, and another one he did say I was there at the end. He basically took the position that John Peebleshot was the one who said I was at the one. I was the one who heard the gunshot when, in fact, it was him. I wasn't there. Okay. And what did you tell the police when they finally caught up with you in June of 1993? I gave the same sentence and the same statement that I always maintain. I told them that what I just told you. I told them I was involved in initial altercation in front of the house. I told them I uh, escorted the victim into the house and was involved into the altercation. Briefly, I told him that I uh, removed myself from the altercation. I told him that I went to go here, went across the street to retrieve the beer, and they kept asking me who did the shooting, and I kept telling them I didn't know because I wasn't there. I told him when I returned back to the scene and seen Anthony Bodie and John Peavy that uh, I didn't know what had happened. So because I wasn't at the physical scene of the homicide, I couldn't tell you who did the shooting, but because Anthony Bodie signed the affidavit saying that it was him, I have to take his word for it. And when you did write your statement, at the end of your statement, you wrote, quote, I, Derek Sanders, regret the fact that this incident occurred over a television set and express my sorrow, end quote. That was in your writing. Why did you write those words? Now, actually, at the time, I had uh, never been arrested, never been in trouble. And the police quoted for me to put that in there. The police basically uh, told me that I should show remorse for my involvement and whatnot. And that's why I put that in there. That was the police actual quote. And I just agreed to it and signed to it. You were, you were how old at the time of this? Uh, 22 years old, turning, uh, about to turn 23. So both um, you and Bodie were charged with first degree intentional homicide, um, party to a crime. Did you, did you know what party to a crime meant at that time? I, I had never been arrested, uh, had never been in the state of Wisconsin. I didn't know what party to a crime meant. So that's a term of art in Wisconsin. We don't use that in Michigan. Tell me what, what that means. Uh, uh, and I know in Indiana means aiding in the bed as an accessory. And I think it's either before a fact, during the fact, or after the fact. So, okay. And that comes into play when you, were being, when you talked about um, with your lawyer whether or not you should take a plea. Right. Um, now, you, your first lawyer, what was the first lawyer's name? Uh, Thomas Alwyn. And was this a court-appointed attorney? Uh, yes, he was a private attorney, and he was a court-appointed, but he was a private attorney. So your family paid him? Uh, yes. And uh, what kind of job did he do for you? 
Oh, I want to be respectful here as much as I can. Uh, you don't have to be respectful on open mic. He did a horrible you can job. Say what you want? Did he do a good job for you he, or a crap job? He did a crap job. He actually, he absolutely did a crap job. He. So uh, us, what happened? One of the things he did is when I told him my story, I told him I wasn't involved. I told him I wasn't there. I told him I was involved in the fight, and he was all full steam ahead. Once we paid him, he was full steam ahead, and he was doing interviewing and everything. And then he told me something that I. Since later learned that was strange. He told me because he couldn't find no one to say I was at the scene, this don't look good for me because just like they can't say I was at the scene, they actually can't say that I was not at the scene. And so he said the time frame and how much time people was getting and people dying. So he told me if I plead no contest, and this is important, he told me if I plead no contest, I can expect to receive anywhere between eight to 10 years. You know what I'm saying? He would argue for the eight, and I'm thinking, well, I would have to do four and whatnot. And I'm thinking, okay, I was involved in the battery. I was involved in that. Eight years, if I argue eight, I do four, get out in four years, maybe less. And so after he talked me into that, I decided to take the plea of no contest. And he explained to me no contest means that I was innocent, but I didn't have the uh, proof to prove my innocence. And that's important because at the time when I played no contest, that's what I'm thinking I was doing. I've never heard. I've never, heard, I've never heard of a no contest plea in a murder. Right. Uh, I don't think. I don't think we do that in Michigan. We might. I don't. You know, as, as our listeners and viewers know, that's not my specialty, criminal law. Right. Although we've done a heck of a lot of uh, episodes on uh, crimes like this. Um, but so he talked you into pleading no contest to the crime, to the murder. You did, and the judge sentenced you to. A life sentence with a parole eligibility date of 22 years later, which was 2015. And when you heard that, what went through your mind? I didn't understand what he was talking about. I was shocked because my my at the time, my attorney, Thomas Alwyn, argued for 8 to 10 years. And when he argued for 8 to 10 years, the prosecutor made a note and said, I don't believe he's eligible to get that. But they continued to talk because my attorney said, well, anyway, I was just arguing for the minimum. And so at this time, I'm not knowing that I couldn't even get eight to 10 years, that the least I could get was a life sentence. So they took you away. You were probably freaking out. Right, exactly. As you, as you should have been. You go to prison, and a couple of years later, your mom, Estella Sanders, got a letter from... Mr. Bodie, who was in prison for the same murder in uh, Wisconsin, um, with an affidavit from him. What did that affidavit say? In the affidavit, he explained how when he was when he first got arrested, that he it told them that I wasn't involved in the crime and that the police kept harassing him and telling him that I was involved. I had something to do with it. He was coming up from me. And so he said after so many hours, he went on and said, yeah, he tried to blame it on me. He said he immediately, and this is in the affidavit, and then he said he immediately, once he met his attorney, he explained to his attorney that he lied on me, that his attorney told him, well, he's not going to advise him to speak to the uh, police, that they would deal with that later on in the defense. And so in his affidavit, he admitted to being a trigger man, admitted to being a trigger man alone, and admitted that I wasn't at the scene. Now, this wasn't a recantation per se, because this affidavit occurred within 1992 within after the crime had happened and so it was fairly new you know what i'm saying and, and i didn't know about this affidavit i was unaware of this affidavit until he sent it to my mom 
because he and I wasn't speaking. He and I wasn't corresponding. He and I hadn't seen each other since we had departed from each other when we turned back to Gary, Indiana. And so with this affidavit, he sent it to my mom. Now I'm in the Court of Appeals in Wisconsin. I'm thinking, absolutely, this is going to free me. And this is like 1996-ish, three years after you were arrested. Three years after I was arrested is when I received the affidavit. And you and you had a new lawyer at this time. Yes, De I had a new lawyer. Deja Vishni. Deja Vishni was like my new attorney. Now, this was an appellate attorney? Yes, this is a... No, no, actually, my appellate attorney, he had won my case. My appellate attorney got my case overturned because my case was overturned because the judge, the judge ruled that I didn't understand how much time I was facing. And during the hearing, Thomas Hall Alwyn, at the hearing, at the hearing we was having, when they asked Thomas Alwyn how much time I was facing, at the hearing, he's three years, two to three years later at the hearing, he still didn't know how much time I was facing. He told the judge he he, he thought I was facing anywhere between six to 12 years. And so my appellate attorney made note that he's practicing law defendants uh he's defended defendants that's facing life sentence in the state of wisconsin and he still doesn't know the sentencing guideline for the state of wisconsin and what he had to explain is that according to the state of wisconsin because i was facing life sentences my sentence had to start at 13 years and six months was the least amount of time i could have got and the judge could have said anything beyond that and my attorney thomas alvin did not know that state he didn't know that fact i'm surprised he has a license right and, and actually uh did he ever lose his license after this? I, I don't know if he lost his license. I know at the time of my hearing, he was being investigated because he was overbilling. And so he was saying that he was coming to meet clients, and he wasn't, and he was billing the state for it. How do you spell his last name? A-L-W-I-N? A-W-E-N. Thomas Alwyn. In the in the affidavit, uh, Bodie wrote to you and your mom um, basically saying that that you were present when, when uh, he was beaten, when uh, Mr. Well, he was beaten, but then you left uh, when he was shot and it was just him and Mr. Peavy in the abandoned house. Uh, and then he told the police this because um, he was scared and uh, that's why he gave a false statement. Right. This is 1996. The, the, and you spent another 20 years in prison after that or more, 22 years in prison after that. Oh, uh, yes. I ended up why didn't that letter get you out? <laughs> wow. Um, my attorney at the time, Deja Vishni, after she was investigating the case, she decided that her words to me was that I got a good deal. The 22 years in prison, eligible for parole, because at the time she said now, she said uh, defendants are facing anywhere between 40 and 50 years before they're eligible to see parole. And so she, she felt that I had a good deal and she felt my case was uh, won on a technicality. And so what she advised me to do was that she would throw out my appeal. She would try to throw out my successful appeal that I won and that she would end up having me just plead no contest to the exact same crime so that I can uh, be placed in the same position I was earlier. And so, so this is a really confusing part or one of the really confusing parts. So you won the appeal. The court of appeal said you didn't understand the plea deal, that you didn't understand the sentencing, which basically means you didn't understand your plea deal. Right. And rather than getting out of prison or letting you plead to something else or demanding a jury trial you pled again to the same exact thing exactly the vice of my lawyer and here's what she told me she told me even with the affidavit that my uh, co-defendant had she said she said no one would believe the affidavit and she said if i went back and tried to go to trial 
they can charge me with the same crime, but this time the judge consented to be more harsher because he would say, oh, you won your appeal, you're playing games. And so I would be facing it. I wouldn't see the parole board until 40 or 50 years down the line. Who was your appellate attorney during these discussions? Your appellate attorney did a great job. Exactly. Got the, got the conviction overturned, right. allowed you to have a, a whole bunch of options in front of you. You knew you didn't commit this crime, and yet you get this court-appointed, another court-appointed attorney, or wait, I say another. Was this woman a court-appointed attorney yeah. or did you pay money for her? She was a court-appointed. She, she told you to take the plea deal? Yes, she yes she did. Same exact plea deal. So why even appeal it? Exactly. Now, once my attorney, once my appellate attorney won the case and I was, I was essentially sent from prison to the county jail, so I started anew. And so he was out of it. Once he won the case, he had done his job. Now I had a regular criminal a, a trial attorney, which was I was appointed Deja Vishnu. I, I, I'm, I'm so this that's the confusing part. You pled guilty twice to the same crime, even though you, even though you uh, got it overturned. I mean, I just, I still don't. I, I'm not. I, I'm hearing you. I'm understanding you. I don't get it. This makes no sense that your second attorney. Um, and you need to set up was as bad as the first attorney, it sounds like. Even worse, because she had the affidavit stating that I wasn't there, I wasn't involved. And at the very least, my at the very least, it's not that she had the affidavit. The judge made a ruling when he sentenced me. He said that he didn't know who pulled the trigger. And so even if she was going to have me plead guilty, she could have went to the prosecutor and said, well, listen, we have an affidavit saying he didn't do it. How about you reduce the charges? How about you do this? She didn't do none of that. She simply uh, had me plead guilty to the crime to where I got more time than an alleged shooter. And My it, head is exploding trying to understand the logic behind this attorney. Uh, more mind-boggling than that was that she asked, at my sentencing, the prosecutor suggested that I get less time than my co-defendant. And I need you to hear this. My, my, at my sentence... My prosecutor suggested, recommended that I get less time. My new attorney, Deja Vishni, when she had me plead, she had the prosecutor stipulate that I get more time than my co-defendant in her, in, in, in my sentencing. So she actually had my prosecutor stipulate to increase the time that she originally recommended for me. What kind of lawyers do you have up there in Wisconsin? Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even, I still don't get it. I'm listening. Uh and uh, so let's I mean, because I'm not going to get it and none of this makes any sense, except you knew that it didn't make sense. Right. And you um, and you I mean, look, at you could have said no. Right. Let's just let's just not let's go there for half a second. Right. You could have said this makes no sense. I just want my appeal. I don't like you. I want a new lawyer. Exactly. You could have said, no, I'm not taking the plea. You could have said, judge. This woman is nuts. What's going on here? I want a different lawyer. I, I want a jury trial. And I guess the reason I'm saying this is not to make you feel uh, anything bad about your decisions. But when when we do these shows to educate people is one of the reasons we do these shows. Right. right. And and you th this at the end of the day, you weren't all that educated. You're not a lawyer. It's your lawyer's fault. But there is some responsibility on you. Do you take that responsibility that you that you didn't do the right thing? 
The responsibility I will take is that I put my full faith and trust in my attorneys. Had never been arrested, and I was always raised. And, and the way media and, and the way uh, media and television portray attorneys is that they work for you, they're there to help you. Not being involved in the uh, criminal system, never being arrested, I didn't know. And so her advice, I had a choice. Her advice, as a trained prof professor, her advice to me was that the judge was going to sentence me to harsher time. Uh, this this was all within a three-year span of me coming down, not knowing Wisconsin law, not knowing the law. Uh, as a person, I was educated. You know what I'm saying? I was educated, graduated, was educated as a person. According to the law, I was ignorant. I, I had no education with the law. And so I was forced to take her word for it. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 I liken it to when you go to a doctor. If you go to see a physician and he tell you diagnosis and he tell you what you need and what need to happen, uh, it's not like you can go and research it yourself. You take this, even if it doesn't sound right, but he knows best. And so I always felt like, well, why am I pleading no contest to, again, to a crime I didn't commit? Especially when the person who committed the crime admitted to being a trick man. I don't understand that. And Eric, I appreciate your analogy with the doctor. And we have to point out that this is the before the internet when you can do a little bit of research. But everybody listening, get a second opinion. Exactly. Get a second opinion if it doesn't feel right. If you're sitting in jail, if you're sitting in prison and you don't agree with your lawyer, insist on a second opinion. And one of the things was me never knowing what party to a crime meant. Uh, once again, I'm thinking, I'm thinking because I was at the scene and because this happened. And that's how she, she, she led me to believe. She led me to believe that even though I'm admitting to being involved in the fight, that everything that occurred after that I was responsible for. She led me to believe that. It's unbelievable. So tell, let's fast forward 23 years. What happened in 2018 that got your case um, looked at by uh, the police again? Well, uh, actually, I was preparing for parole. And as I was preparing for, for parole, there was this guy named Edward Jackson, uh, an inmate. And he was known as a legal beagle within the prison system. And I had spoke to him, him, I was a uh, good associates, and I spoke to him to uh, help me prepare for my first initial parole letter. And this was in 2015, actually. And in 2015, when I was explaining to him what happened, he said it didn't sound right. It's like you said it didn't sound right. Now, this is not a lawyer. This is an inmate. And so he asked to look at my case, and, and I showed him my case, and he started showing me where they didn't explain to me the definition of party to a crime. And that was the first time I understood the definition of party to a crime. And so he was going to help me with, now I didn't know nothing about the law. And so he was going to help me with my case. Then he ended up getting transferred to another institution. And so I decided to just go to the law library and just look up the, the one case law that he gave me. I just looked it up on the computer. And from that day forward, I went to the law library every day because I started looking up cases. And as I continued to look up cases, and, and continue to look at my case and seeing the similarities. I started doing just limited research, just focused on party to a crime. And the more I researched, the more I got angry. And the more anger I got, the more determined I got to gain my freedom. And so uh, that was in 2015. By 2017, I had prepared my own motion, pro se, meaning I did my own motion myself. And as I was going to file it, this is amazing, I was going to file the motion. I end up writing the Milwaukee prosecutor's office as well as the Milwaukee public defender's office. And I sent them a copy of the motion. The public defender's office appointed me attorney. Once I got this new attorney, she held my case for one year, one year. And she told me she didn't think I was going to win. 
I was doing good in prison. I should focus on my parole. And so I decided to fire her. I told her, like, listen, I'm tired of listening to you attorneys. And so I fired her. And she said, well, if you go pro se, you're not going to win. And so after I fired my attorney, I immediately in 2018, filed my case in the Milwaukee uh, County Courthouse. I filed my case into the same judge that I had. And he denied most of the issues and accepted one issue. And this was considered a uh, Judge Wagner. He was a notorious, uh, tough judge. And I end up asking him, filing another motion, asking him to reconsider the issues that he denied. And he agreed with me in reconsideration and gave me all of my issues. But in doing so, he said the issues were too complex for me to proceed pro se. So he appointed me an attorney, which was the attorney who eventually, months later, was my attorney on record when I was released. Who was that? Uh, Rex Anderidge. I like to give a good shout out to the best one of the lawyers out of the three or four that you had. The, not the, the appellate lawyer too was it was pretty darn was pretty darn good. Um, so you got a new lawyer. The judge was listening to you. Uh, then what happened? Uh, got, got a new lawyer. I got a court date. That's all I wanted was a court date. And at this court date, the state had to prove that I understood the concept of party to a crime because it's nowhere on the record. And and this is this is like a true story. The night before when me and uh, attorney Andres was preparing for me to go on my hearing and he was going over the questions and whatnot, he made a comment. He was like, well, I'm sure she's going to say she explained party to a crime or that she don't recall. And I was like, well, you know, she can't, I don't know how she can say that when I continuously told her I wasn't at the scene, I had nothing to do with it. And she was like, well, she's going to deny you said that. I was like, well, it's on record. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I have her notes from her interview of me. And I showed him the notes and he, his face, he was surprised that I, he, one, he was surprised I had the notes, but two, he was surprised that after reading the notes, where in the interview, I told my attorney at the time, Deja Vishnu, I wasn't at the scene of the crime. I didn't know nothing about the homicide. I wasn't involved in the homicide of none of that. And he kept looking at the notes and he was like, these are her notes. I said, yes, these are her notes. They entered into the courts. And so the next day when we went to the court, he entered the notes as evidence and asked her to read the notes and read the interview. And that's when she had to admit that everything I said in uh, in her notes is what I told her. And so he turned around and said, if he explained to you he wasn't at the scene of the crime, he explained to you he didn't know nothing about it. How did you get him to plead no contest to party to a crime? And I also had on record me telling the judge, I wrote the judge a handwritten letter when I was arrested and explained to him that I wasn't involved with the crime. I didn't know nothing about the crime. And that the only reason I'm pleading no contest is was because I was involved in the fight. And he wasn't allowed to accept my plea. In the West state of Wisconsin, you can't accept a no contest plea while a person simultaneously denies being involved, denies being at the crime, denies taking any part in the crime. He wasn't supposed to take my plea. Did the letter you write to the judge, was did, was it in the file? Did it make it to the file? Yes, it was in the file. And it, and now the the attorney Vishni, the woman, did she, um, you know, when she was on the stand and being questioned during this hearing, was she combative or was she helpful to you? Actually, she was helpful. And I think she I, I think she realized her mistake because when I first walked in the courtroom, she kept wanting to speak to me. She asked me, how was I doing? And she said something of the fact like, you know, you look nice under the circumstances. And I don't want to put words in her mouth. But I think she was trying to say she was sorry. And so when she was on the stand, her position was she couldn't recall. She couldn't remember because the case was so long ago. But she kind of got upset once my attorney uh, initiated 
her notes into the record. And because once she read it, he, he gave her time to read it. And once he asked her, is that what he said? Her comment was, well, obviously that's what he said. If that's what I wrote in the notes, I wouldn't just make nothing up. And it was at that moment she realized that if I was explaining to her I wasn't at the scene, I had nothing to do with the scene, how did she explain to me? How, why did she advise me to plead no contest? Especially, and he asked her that. She was like, he, my attorney Rex asked her, after reading your notes, after having the affidavit from the actual trigger man, how did you advise Mr. Sanders to plead no contest? And she couldn't answer that. Because she screwed up. Right, exactly. I'm not going to say she's a terrible lawyer all around every day, but she was a terrible lawyer for you. And actually for what she ended up doing was, like I said, I think, she, I believe she believed I got my case overturned on a technicality. And uh, maybe she, had, I don't know how long she had been practicing law. And she was just running me through the system. And basically that's what she said. Uh, from the day I got my, from the day she became my attorney to 30 to 40 days, I had returned back to prison with the exact same crime. And that's what she was focused on. She wasn't really focused on guilt or innocence. Oh. So the judge after this hearing did what? Well, the judge after this hearing told me this was July 2nd. Uh, July 29th, my attorney got on the stand, which was a Friday. And then they adjourned it to July 2nd, which was a Monday for me to take stand. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this. The, at the time, the, the DA, the uh, Milwaukee County DA, which name is Paul Tiffin, I think he I think he recognized the truth because he really wasn't fighting me. He asked me four questions. He just asked me what I was on the stand. Did I understand party to crime at the time? I said no. He said, did anyone explain to me party to a crime? I said no. He asked me, how did I learn about party to a crime? I explained to him when I was in prison, this uh, legal beagle, Edward Jackson. And he said, do I understand party to a crime now? I said yes. And he said no further questions. Uh, he understood the, the case. He understood that uh, from the record, he realized that it was I was uh, manifesting justice had occurred. And so the judge had made a ruling on July 2nd that he was going to issue his decision in, I think, November. And so I had returned back to prison waiting on the judge's decision. Around August, late August, I was told I had to go to court. And I was like, well, I don't have a court date. But they take me, took me from prison and rolled me down to Milwaukee County. And I would end up getting the news that my case, the judge had ruled in my favor that my case, that he threw out my plea. I was able to withdraw my plea. And so, excuse me, it wasn't August, it was September 13th. September 13th, I ended up going to court. And that morning, I didn't even get to speak. Uh, the Milwaukee County District Attorney, Paul Tiffin, put in a motion for my immediately release. And so after spending 26 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit, only thing the judge and, and I don't and I don't say this. I was a little upset because the only thing the judge said was he accepted the motion from the state. He looked at me and he said, good luck, sir. And that was it. It wasn't no fanfare. It wasn't no media there. It wasn't no we sorry we took 26 years of your life. It wasn't no I understand you missed a lot of things. You you had to go through a lot of deaths in your family. It was good luck, sir. And the proceedings was over with less than I was in court less than five to 10 minutes and I was released from prison immediately. Well, congratulations. Uh, too late, but I'm happy that you're out. You've been out for almost three years. The The court system or the state compensated you a measly $25,000. What what was that about? Okay, now, this, this that was a little frustrating because I initially filed actually like $5.7 million. The state, right now, I'm still in the courts with the state because they offered me $25,000 and said that's the max they can give me. 
and they fought me. They're fighting me tooth and nail along the way. And I decided that, no, I would not accept the $25,000. And so I appealed the decision, excuse me, which my appeal is due actually uh, Friday, uh, Friday or Saturday. I just put, I just filed out my brief and I'm doing it pro se because they made some material errors and whatnot. And they postponed my hearing. The Milwaukee County District Attorney Office said they didn't oppose my compensation request of $5.7 million, that they would not be at the hearing. I came to the hearing. The hearing only asked me two questions. Where did I get the number $5.7 million and why I didn't sue my attorney? That's the only two questions they asked. Then they turned around and gave me the statutory maximum of $25,000. But they could have recommended more, and they didn't. And so I'm appealing that decision. I'm also currently in the process of suing my attorney, Deja Vishni. And they're fighting me. Their argument is not that Deja Vishni was incompetent as an attorney. Their argument is that I didn't meet the state criteria, a technicality of I didn't file a notice of claim of injury to the attorney general. Whereas I, uh, I sent it to the Milwaukee County, the district attorney office and whatnot, but because I didn't file a notice of claim of, in, uh, uh, notice of, claim of injury to the, uh, specifically to the attorney general, they saying uh, I shouldn't have a lawsuit. And what we're arguing right now is that it's not actually required to because Deja Vishni was a state public defender. She wasn't per se working for the state because she can't work for the state on my behalf as well as fight the state because it's state versus Sanders. So she can't be an agent of the state. And so that's where we're currently at with the judge for him to decide if I can proceed with the lawsuit. But no one is saying, yes, he was incarcerated for 26 years, you're awfully. Uh, yes, he should be compensated more. They're saying, technically, he should have filed this paperwork to this people, even though I was going pro se. Well, I wish you the best of luck on those lawsuits and those claims. I hope you win. I hope you get every dollar you deserve. You were treated wrongfully by the state. You had some very incompetent attorneys. Um, they should have apologized to you, and uh, you were definitely wrong. So. I never received an apology. I never received. I think in their eyes, I think releasing me from prison after 26 years was apology enough. And and I felt that the state of Wisconsin, historically, you know, the 26 years I did that historically, legally wise. And, and my, I just wanted your uh, audience to know my case is atypical and that I received, I was exonerated twice for the same crime. But it's also one of the things the, it shows where we have faith in these attorneys. And I'm not speaking ill about the attorneys, but I had four different attorneys and three of them was incompetent. They didn't do their job. Not because I don't think they didn't know their job. I think they looked at me, African-American, young guy, young male, and they just thought they would move me through the system. And because I was dependent on them to learn the law, I was dependent on them to know the law. I was dependent on them to throw the rules. And like you said, I should have got a second and third opinion, but I trusted in them. And it was like they were so callously with it and cavalier in their actions that they didn't care. You know, even after the fact, you know, when I talked to a couple of attorneys because I came home and I called them and, and they still didn't give me no reason on, on why the advice they gave me, they gave me. Why would they do that? After the record is clear, I continue to told you that I wasn't at the scene of the crime. If the record was clear and it took a person who was incarcerated, it took a person, Edward Lee Jackson, who was incarcerated to look at my paperwork within five minutes and quote case law and say what they was wrong. It took me to go through research, research. Here I am a person, no law degree, none of that. And once I did get an attorney, she have a law degree and she told me I couldn't win my case. And 
luck blessed enough, I took faith and told my mom, may she rest in peace. Like, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison, I'm stopping listening to attorneys. I'm willing to spend the rest of my life in prison as long as it's based on some mistake that I made. And so I did, quote, unquote, pro se. I went to court on my own and won my case. And so three different attorneys couldn't win my case. I'm, I'm aware. It's Listen, you not all attorneys are created equal. Right. Tell me about your life since getting out. It's been three years. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me how you how you're what you're doing, how you're doing. Uh well, actually, uh, I'm blessed. I'm I'm doing great. I'm married. Uh as soon Congratulations. as I, man, thank you. Yeah, uh married to a beautiful wife and uh she supported me. She was the reason that uh I was able to actually make it in society and adjust, you know. And so I end up moving to Gary, coming home to Gary, Indiana. A year in less than a, a year in a month, my mom passed away. Mm. After being there, after being there when I was released, after standing there, after hugging me in the county jail for my release, a, a year and a month to that date, she was uh, she was she ended up passing away. And you know, right. she witnessed me get married. She witnessed me hold a job. She witnessed me speak to the uh, children. She witnessed me do interviews. She witnessed me speak at colleges. And then I decided to relocate from Gary and Dana to where I'm at right now in Grand Prairie, Texas. Uh, I ended up getting my commercial driver's license because. Although I have no criminal record, it's still hard when you have a 26-year void for jobs. I never held a job. And so I, I found myself explaining that. And so I felt the best thing for me to do was get my commercial driver's license. So I'm currently driving uh, for General Motors and doing fairly decent, fairly well, and having plans on doing more speaking arrangements as well as maybe owning my own truck one day. Who knows? But uh, I'm doing well. As far as with opportunities that I'm have, like I said, I'm married, but I'm also still institutionalized because I spent 26 years of my life in prison. I spent more time in prison than out of prison. Mm. I'm 50 years old and I spent 26 years in prison. Well, I am so sorry this happened to you. I, I the story is maddening. As an attorney, it's maddening. I've I've listened to lots of stories. This is this ranks right up there as one of the. Um, most messed up stories. Uh, no justice in this case until you got out. Uh, three out of your four lawyers sucked. And uh, that's a legal term, by the way. Right. And, um, and I'm just, uh, you know, all I can do is, 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 is apologize for uh, people I never met. And I'm sorry that the system treated you so poorly. I'm sorry that it took 26 years for you to receive the justice that you deserved. Um, and hopefully, Somebody listening to this podcast, watching this podcast will know that they should get a second opinion, not just listen to their attorney. Uh, if they know in their gut, in their heart that it's not right, go seek that second opinion, stand up in front of a judge or prosecutor, scream and yell that this is not right. And I need a second opinion from somebody more experienced, more credible, somebody who doesn't have 15 cases in a day, somebody just trying to get me to take a plea deal to move on to the next one because they're only making a few hundred bucks or whatever it was, whatever the reasons were. That's it. Uh, right on up. So listen, I'm glad your attitude seems remarkably good. You seem happy. You're married. You're working. And uh, you said you're blessed. So I'm very happy for you. And um, I'm also happy that you came on to open mic and you shared your story. And I wish you the best of luck in the future. Okay. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. My pleasure. And good luck on your speaking gigs. And I hope to meet you one day in person and talk to you again soon. Will do. Okay. All right. Take care.
Derek Sanders, that's uh, a hard pill to swallow, listening to that story, listening to the terrible lawyering that he endured. And um, my heart goes out to him and his family and everything that he suffered. So if you know somebody who needs to hear this one, send it, forward it, comment, and uh, please subscribe to Open Mic. And we look forward to bringing you more episodes in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching.